pray once more. Indeed, Father, yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, and you have no rival. We just sang that, and I pray by your spirit that you would move amongst us now, that you would help our faith such that we could walk out of here today, not just singing that in church, but living it, living in that truth that you have no rival. Give us wisdom now, as you promised to do if we ask you for it. So I ask you for wisdom for me, for all of us. Give us wisdom, help our faith, enlarge our hearts that we, must, that we may run in your way. I pray. Amen. So what does it mean to be courageous and useful in our generation? What does that mean? Um, both, both are needed. Both are needed. Um, it, it's worthless to be courageous if, if you're not courageous in the service of something useful. Or you, you can be clear on the most useful thing to do but you can lack the, the love, the requisite love, and therefore the selfless courage to run to the battle line and actually engage the enemy in courage. Christians all acknowledge today that we are in a fight. We all, we all universally acknowledge that, but we, it is not universally acknowledged that when you are in a fight, the best thing to do is to act like you're in a fight. <laughs> to fight. <laughs> to be militant. Which, let's be honest, we're not very good at, <laughs> at least the American church. We're not very good at this. Um, thus, it is so important, so important that we watch and learn and follow in the footsteps of the militancy of Jesus here in Luke 13. Jesus' course is taking him to one destination, Jerusalem, verse 22. And in verse 23, he was asked, if you may remember from last week, that are those who are saved, will they be few? And he replied that on that day that those who are first now will be last, people like the synagogue rulers, like the Pharisees, as Tom said in verses 10 through 17, who criticized Jesus for healing that poor bound up woman. For their cruel hypocrisy was just another reason why, verses one through nine, Jerusalem was under condemnation. God had planted it like a gardener in a vineyard planted it among the nations, verse 7, but it had not produced fruit. The whole chapter is dark. Death, murder, condemnation of rulers, condemnation of cruel, hypocritical rulers. The whole chapter is dark, but at the center of it is Jesus, militant in the darkness, dead set on going to Jerusalem to plant the smallest of seeds, verse 19, that will grow to fill the whole world. So let's look more closely at his militancy here in verses 31 through 35 and then draw out its key principle and then we'll, we'll try to apply it to our lives today. Well, it says there that at that very hour, verse 31, at the very hour that Jesus is, is teaching those Pharisees that those who are now first will one day be last, comes a message from some Pharisees about Herod. Get away from here, they say. Herod wants 
to kill you. This Herod is Herod Antipas, the, the Tetrarch, which means one of four rulers um, who were delegated rule under Caesar. He, he's, like, he's like a governor uh, possessing the power of a governor, possessing governing power, governing authority, but, but not as much as a king. Herod Antipas ruled uh, his domain violently and erratically. You may remember that he was the one who killed John the Baptist, had him beheaded. And now, presumably, he wants to kill Jesus. It's, it's worth asking why Herod is so insecure. <laughs> like, why, why, why John the Baptist, and why does Jesus want to kill an obscure itinerant teacher from, from Galilee so badly? Well, what's the deal? Um, well, perhaps Herod was actually reading his Bible. Because after all, the prophet Zechariah and others spoke of a day of the Lord where the people of God would wage war against the nations and they would establish the kingdom of God. So perhaps he thinks that John the Baptist, or Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead and that he is going to lead a rebellion. After all, the signature teaching of Jesus is what? The kingdom of God that brooks no rivals. So maybe Herod was just reading his Bible. And maybe reading his Bible, he felt a little insecure. <laughs> Whatever the case, the Pharisees tell Jesus that murderous Herod wants to kill Jesus, so get out of here. Get out of here. And in every other case, by the way, in the Gospel of Luke, when Luke mentions the Pharisees, it's always negative, always negative. Um, it's a little ambiguous here. It's, it's not quite so clear. Are they really concerned about Jesus, or is this a trap? Is this like manipulating Jesus? Not really clear. But whatever the case, regardless, Jesus' response puts them to the test as it does us, as it does us. Go and tell that fox, behold, see with your own eyes, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I'll finish my course. I'll do what I want. <laughs> um, this, this first, second, and third day language, it was a, just a common Hebrew way of saying a short amount of time, a short amount of time. I'll get there soon enough, but I'm going to walk on my own timetable. And it, and it certainly evokes something in our minds of what will happen in Jerusalem that over the most momentous three days of human history, Jesus will finish his course. But Jesus's meaning here is, is, is this. No, I'm not, I'm not going to change my mission. <laughs> I'm not going to change my timetable. I'm not going to change what I'm doing. I'm not going to change where I'm going. And I'm not going to change when I get there. Nope. <laughs> I'm not going to listen to the threat. Not even a threat of murder, you fox. <laughs> so go on now. If you're really my disciple, you go tell that fox that that's my reply. Jesus' um, reply here is vastly more eloquent, but, but similar, similar in tone to when General Anthony McAuliffe of the 101st Airborne in World War II at Bastogne was offered surrender by the German army, and his reply was, nuts. <laughs> uh, the reason why that response was so great, why his soldiers loved it so much, was that on the one hand, it was, it was playful, and it, and it subtly mocked the Germans for even asking the question in the first place. But it also said 
I, I'm, I'm actually quite confident in the power at my disposal. I actually think that my power, I don't, I don't care about numbers of soldiers, I actually think that the power at my disposal is much stronger than yours. So nuts. <laughs> Bug off. <laughs> I mean, it's not a perfect analogy, but it, but it sheds some light here on why Jesus would call Herod that fox. McCullough's just kind of backed into his reply if you read the history, but, but Jesus' reply here is, is pure, genius, pure, pure genius because it accurately captures Herod from, from every angle of reality. If, if you and I were there, if you, if you and I lived in those days, we, this is the word we would have used. It, it accurately describes what would have been our experience of Herod at in every human culture throughout history, everybody has thought of a fox as a conniving little thief. <laughs> and that's what Herod was. It was an accurate epithet. But that word little, he's a conniving little fox, the, the word fox in Hebrew culture had also taken on a different meaning. It, it, it took on the meaning of someone that, that fancied themselves as, as more powerful and noble than they really were. Like a, like a lion, the king of the animals, when they were really just, you know, a little fox. Um, it's kind of like thinking you're Aslan from Narnia when you're really just Swiper the fox from Dora the Explorer, you know? <laughs> Swiper, no swipies. That's, that, that is the edge of what Jesus is saying. You're laughing, and that's exactly what a Hebrew listener would have felt. A chuckle. That fox. <laughs> Swiper, no swipies. It's funny because it's true. But then there was a third angle to this word. The word for fox in Hebrew is almost, almost identical in pronunciation to the name Saul. Saul. And this whole scenario here feels identical to that when, if you remember from the Old Testament, when David had been anointed king and King Saul in his murderous rage wanted to prevent his crowning his crowning as king in Jerusalem. And so King Saul hounded David and tried to kill him. Tried to kill him. David did not presume to completely mock Saul. And when he had the chance, he did not lay his hand on Saul. But on the other hand, David didn't submit himself to Saul either and allow Saul to kill him. Saul, or David ran from Saul and was eventually crowned as king. Herod is a fox. Herod is like Saul. So Jesus says, verse 33, that that fox won't stop me. I, I am the greater David, and my mission is to be crowned king in Jerusalem. Yet, in the great irony of ironies, his coronation will be his death. This is because Jesus is God's king. He is God's king, and so Jesus will be, go to Jerusalem and be crowned be crowned as king on a gory Roman cross. On a gory Roman cross. And then he will also go as God's prophet and fill up the history of, of, of what Jerusalem has always done to God's prophets. Verse 34, Zechariah was, was killed there. It is said that Isaiah was killed in Jerusalem. Many prophets were killed under King Manasseh. Jesus says, I must, I must go there. It, it cannot be otherwise. I must go to Jerusalem. My death must happen there. 
And we will see why, why it must happen, why it cannot be otherwise in just a moment. But then in verse 34, we, we see the other side of Jesus, the, the same Jesus that just a mom, moment ago can call Herod swiper. In the next moment, sheds tears of lament, lament over what Herod wants to steal, Jerusalem. Jesus is like a mother hen who can't, who can't bear, who, who grieves the reality that her chicks refuse to take refuge under her wings. For it's only a hen, only a, only a hen can tell you what a fox is really like. Only a hen can tell you, in, in love for her children, the depth of the depravity of the fox. Jesus can only tell us so accurately the nature of Herod because he so loves his people. But they refuse to take refuge under his wings. And so, verse 35, their house, Jerusalem, and its temple is forsaken. This is a divine passive tense here. The passive tense is a respectful way of referring to God. God is forsaking their house. The window is closing. The window is closing. But, verse 35 the next time he comes, it will be his last until his return to rule over all the nations. Jesus has already been to Jerusalem three times, and he will come one more time. And when he comes for that last time, the people will at first cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But by the end of the week, they'll be crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And then shortly after that, the tree from verse 9, the fig tree will be cut down. The window will close. Well, that's the passage. So what's the, what's the fundamental principle here? We see Jesus' courage. We see his tears of lament. But these cannot be understood by us and unless we understand his single-minded focus on Jerusalem, that he must go there. In God's plan, Jerusalem is like the, the narrow neck of an, of an hourglass. It's, it's, it's where the first part of God's plan comes to an end. It's where the rebellion of God's chosen people comes to the full and where the window finally closes, the window of opportunity to repent. And yet in that narrow part of the hourglass, something new happens, something that we can only describe as amazing. For in the very moment, in the very moment that their rebellion comes to its fullest when the crowds have turned from quoting psalms to calling for his blood. In the very moment that they deserved most to have their house forsaken by putting Jesus on the cross, in that moment, it would be Jesus who would be forsaken for them in their place. This moment is called the divine dereliction when Jesus cried out from the cross, quoting King David, Father, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus became the great high priest and offered himself as the sacrifice to be forsaken in the place of God's people. And that had to happen in Jerusalem, for that was where the temple was, where the sacrifices for sin were made. And because Jerusalem is the place that King David set up the city of God where God would reign over his people, 
he had to reign there from the cross. And he did when the Romans set the sign over Jesus' head, King of the Jews. Jesus reigned in the great irony of ironies in the moment of his greatest weakness. He reigned in the greatest power over sin and over death itself. He reigned. He reigned. See, he came as the great high priest of God. He came as the king of God to Jerusalem. And as the prophet of God, he had to go to Jerusalem to announce a new covenant to all the world. But in order to do so, he had to die like the prophets before him. In order for the covenant to be changed, the prophets of the covenant have to die. And so it was in his dying moments that he spoke the three greatest words like a prophet ever spoken. It is finished. The old way of the law is finished. All the guilt of the law is finished. It is finished. All separation from God, all threat of hell, all fear of death, it is finished. It is finished in Him. And then when His body was laid in the ground, the, the, the death of an obscure teacher from Nazareth, it was like the smallest of seeds planted in the soil, but then three days later, He was raised from the dead, and the tree grew, and the hourglass began to expand again. And it will continue. It has continued all the way up to today, even to California, <laughs> even to you, even to me, even to me. Until, and it will, it will continue to grow until all the nations find refuge under his wings and find the bread of life and sing with all authenticity, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus had to go to Jerusalem because it was only there that he could become the prophet, the priest, and the king that the world so desperately needs that you and I have always needed. It is fascinating when I, when I think about these three offices of Jesus. It is fascinating to me how they correspond to the three realities that I just mentioned about in, in, embedded in the name Fox that Jesus called Herod. What I mean here is that when you see God in Jesus clearly, the more clearly you see God in Christ, the more clearly you will see all other reality. What, how does that apply here? Well, God is a trinity, and, and each member of the Godhead provides us with one aspect of reality, and nested within the trinity, Jesus himself is a prophet, priest, and king, and each one of those offices, as we see them very clearly, each one of those offices helps us to see reality more clearly. As priest, Jesus enters into our experience and affirms it and honors it. What you and I experience matters. It matters. And what we would say of Herod matters and is true. He was a conniving thief. As king, Jesus now sovereignly reigns by the power of his resurrection over every square inch of our life. And so the, the truth about Herod is that Herod is an authority, but compared to the power of the king who reigns over him, well, <laughs> it's almost laughable by comparison. He's just a fellow ant who got to be in charge of the anthill. <laughs> huh. 
And as prophet, Jesus speaks the unchanging law of God. In fact, he is the word of God. And so he gives us God's unchanging true perspective on reality. And from the perspective of God, Herod's time is short. Today, tomorrow, the third day, and he'll be gone. He'll be gone. The glory and the goodness that the nations seek will not be found by obeying the threatening words of Herod, but by hearing and obeying by faith the words of the prophet Jesus. The more clearly we see Jesus and all three of his offices, the more clearly we see the reality of our day, the more clearly we see the threats of our day. And the more constructively and courageously we may respond to those threats. So, you are hearing this sermon today. You are hearing this sermon today because of what happened in Jerusalem so long ago. And by the power, that unstoppable, inexorable power of the seed that was planted into the ground, fertilized by the blood of Jesus, by that power, you have come to know him if you are in him. By that power, you, I am here today. By that power, you are hearing these words spoken to you today because of what happened in Jerusalem. All of Jesus' courage and all of our courage, all of Jesus' usefulness to the whole world and all of our usefulness to the whole world comes from His, our undying focus upon Jerusalem, what happened there and what will happen there. So, if you have not trusted in Him, I, I want to say first off, I ask you, to do so, because there is no other refuge that anyone can find but in Him, by, by turning from our old ways, dying to ourselves, and trusting in Him. So will you do this? Will you do this? But if you are a Christian, if, if we are truly to be Jesus' disciples, and if we want to be truly useful to the world to bring real healing to the nations that every governing authority throughout history always promises to bring and never does. But we try harder in our insanity. If you truly want to bring healing to the nations, then we too, just like Jesus, must be dead set on Jerusalem, undistractedly, on what Jesus did there as prophet, priest, and king. Because it is only there in Jerusalem that anyone may go on the exodus of Jesus. Do you remember the transfiguration? And do you remember what Elijah and Moses, the one thing they wanted to talk to Jesus about, about how he was going to go on his exodus in Jerusalem? The only way that you or I or anyone will experience the exodus of Jesus, the, 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 the escape from death, the escape from guilt and shame, true freedom and life forevermore. The only way is by going on Jesus' exodus in Jerusalem at the cross. 
Only when we are fixed on Jerusalem, on the power of the cross and the empty tomb, will we then possess the perspective that's necessary to courageously and usefully face down the dragons of our day. Only then. G.K. Chesterton once said, It is only the man who is brave enough to challenge dragons who can discover that they are only lizards. But we only gain the bravery, the courage to challenge the dragons in the first place by fixing our minds on Jerusalem, on Jerusalem past, the past of the cross and of the resurrection and the Jerusalem to come, where the Garden of Eden will be restored and a river of life will flow through it and there'll be trees on either side of it and those trees will be for the healing of the nations. So then... With that, with that image in mind, with our minds fixed on Jerusalem, with all of these thoughts in our minds and our hearts turned there, how does it feel then when I say, let's go, Brandon? <laughs> how does that feel? Funk. <laughs> I, I feel like I just fell out of a tree <laughs> and hit a couple branches on the way down. By the way, if you've sent me some meme or something, I'm not thinking about you. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about myself and thinking about everybody here, okay? Because this thing is everywhere, everywhere. If you don't know what I'm talking about, there, there have been entire football stadiums chanting a vile phrase, mocking Joe Biden. And this is, I, I don't think I need to say, this is off limits for Christians. Ephesians 5 tells us, let no vile speech come out of your mouth. So that, that, that's clear. Um, but then recently, a reporter was interviewing an unfortunate race car driver named Brandon, and you could easily hear the vile chant in the background, and then she tried to cover it up by saying, oh, wasn't this nice? They're cheering for you. They're saying, let's go, Brandon. <laughs> and a viral meme was born. Um, it is funny, in my opinion, at least as it so comically pictures how much of our mainstream media has become like you know, the Soviet newspaper Pravda. Um, it's like the first sense of Fox. It, it actually does accurately capture our experience of how we experience reality today through mainstream media. But in another sense, the, the problem with Let's Go Brandon is that not, it's, it's not that it's based on a bad word, but that it doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go far enough to describe reality. It's like drinking O'Doul's when what we really need is strong scotch. Um, for instance, in the face of government-induced inflation, it's not enough to say, let's go, Brandon. We need to see God's prophetic perspective from his word. And when we do that, what we discover is that it's actually state-sponsored theft, conniving theft, especially from the lower, poorer classes. That ain't right. That is unjust. Or when the Herods of our day threaten to force vaccinate children without knowing all the dangers, on the other hand, so that, that's one ditch, but there's another ditch in that it is possible to overcompensate and to give Herod too much credit, too much credit as if he has more power than he really does and to be distracted from the true power, the true mission that we are called upon as disciples of Jesus to turn against the threat and to make our response to the threat our entire mission. 
So on, on the one hand, we, we must be able to say, we, we must be able to say, oh, me, oh, you can kill me. Do, do your worst because for me to live and for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So do what you will. Do what you will, whatever. Because regardless, I've got a course to finish. I've got a gospel to live out. I've already got a king who reigns over every square inch of my life, who reigns over every square inch of existence. So I look over your shoulder, Mr. Herod, and I see him. I see him. And so I will still honor you. I will follow in David's footsteps, and I will not utter a vile word about you. But that king, I, I, I will love and follow him. I will love and follow him all the way to Jerusalem. Come what may. Come what may. I've already got a prophet whose words I follow. I've already got a great high priest who gives me a much better plan for dealing with my guilt than endlessly groveling before the zeitgeist of the age. Again, vaccines and kids, decline if you want. Take them if you want. That's not the question. Regardless, this age, this age needs people who can say above all else, you must repent because the time is short. Today, tomorrow, the third day, and then the course will end. The course will end. And, and to you, Mr. Herod, and all who are with you, you will perish. And so will all of your, your money, sex, and power it will perish. You think you're a lion, but you're just a weaselly little fox and you will be crushed. You will be crushed. One day you will face the lion of Judah and you will knock on the door and you will say with all kinds of pride, Lord, open to us. And he will say, I do not know where you come from. Repent, turn, bow your knee, make peace with the king. Make peace with the king because I can hear the thump, thump, thump of his big paws, that lion of Judah. I can hear them coming. I can hear the ground shake as he approaches today, tomorrow, and the third day, and he will be here. So the world needs people who can say that, who, who can see that the ax, as John the Baptist said, is already laid at the root of the tree. Who, who have this balance that on the one hand, it, it, it is good and right. You are following in the footsteps of Jesus to mock our military for naming a ship after Harvey Milk. On the other hand, on the other hand, to weep, to weep at our culture, to realize that it is already under the judgment of God. To weep that, that God's wrath is already being poured out. Romans 1, it's already being poured out. It's, it's, it's not even close to being enough to say, let's go, Brandon. What is that? I say this to myself as much as anybody. God, give the world people who can say, that's a fox, but all of the foxes and all who follow him will be crushed and are already under the judgment of God. Already, all of, the, all of the crazy isms of our day, sometimes they're worth mocking, but they're just symptoms of a deeper disease of the suppression of the knowledge of God and the substituting of him for, the, for idolatry, for created things. That's the problem. That's the problem. 
And if, and if we do not set our eyes on Jerusalem, on the foot of the cross, on Calvary, we will lose sight of that. And we will be co-opted into the, the isms of our day. When threats come after us, we will be filled with fear or filled with indignation. But either way, we'll be distracted from the mission, the only mission that can bring the healing of the nations to bring the world to Jerusalem. We must lead ourselves and our families and our neighbors and our city to Jerusalem, to the foot of the cross. If that is our goal, if that is the course that we know that we must run, that we are burdened, that it cannot be otherwise in our lives, then our words, whatever they will be to the world, will be at the same time a little salty and yet at the same time salted with tears. So again, I ask, why are we so bad at this? Why are we so bad at Why am I so bad at this? I think it's because somewhere along the way, we made it our mission, not Jerusalem, but being nice. We made being nice our gospel. But everybody is nice to some people and mean to others. It's not a matter of, of which, but, but whether, or whether, but which. Which people are you nice to and which people are you mean to? And for so long, the American church has been nice to the world, yet all the while biting and devouring ourselves. We're nice to the world, but watch Christians talk about COVID procedures online and watch them bite each other like rabid dogs. It's all backwards. If you really love the world, you will take it to Jerusalem. You will be dead set on Jerusalem. If you really love the world, you won't bite and scratch at other Christians because you disagree with them about vaccines or whatever. You won't make an idol out of long life. A life lived longer is not necessarily life. Life is only found in the one who is, who's been raised from the dead and who yet lives today. If you love your neighbor, you'll take them to Jerusalem, to the foot of the cross. And in the process, watch out. Watch out. Because along the way, people will begin to notice something different about you. They will say, you are courageous. <laughs> and you will say, huh, that's weird, because I never set out to be courageous. I just set my nose towards Jerusalem. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Courageous and useful, you will truly be. You will. You will not have to set out to be courageous. You will be because you are following in the steps of the one who was perfectly courageous and perfectly useful. And you will find yourself facing down dragons and finding them to be but lizards as you run your course. <laughs> and along the way, you'll have plenty of times to chuckle <laughs> where you otherwise would have been afraid. You will chuckle and that chuckle will be pleasing to God. This is so necessary because time is short. Time is short. So because time is so short until he returns, the course we walk is a militant one. This is war. And the important thing to notice in wartime is that one acts like it is war. To fight. 
But as we set our minds on Jerusalem, as, as we set our eyes on the three offices of Jesus, that he is our prophet, our priest, and our king, what we notice is that the weapons that we fight with are not of flesh and blood. Our weapons are faith, hope, and love. They are the way, the truth, and the life. Our weapons are forgiveness, mercy, and grace. They are kindness, courage, and a bloody cross. And against such weapons, no enemy, no weapon will prevail. So will you follow him? Will you set your mind, will you set your heart, will you set your very life towards Jerusalem and towards bringing the world there? Let me, let me pray for that now. Let's pray. Father, please start with me. Please take the ways that I am prone to distraction and grant me repentance. And do the same with my brothers and sisters here. Grant us to turn from our, our waywardness with our eyes, the places that we set our affections, and turn our hearts to set our affections upon Jerusalem, upon the place where you became the prophet, the priest, and the king of the whole world. Grant us your favor. Grant us to your favor to lead our neighbors there, the people that live on our streets, the people that we work with, the people of this town. Grant us your favor and lead others there too for their freedom <coughs> to go on the exodus of Jesus, to experience freedom from death, from guilt, to life in your promised land forevermore. Do all of this, do all of this to the fame of your name. Do all of this to the glory of, to the praise of your glorious grace, your amazing grace, we pray. Amen.